Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. As stock traders freaked out and the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all plummeted earlier this week, credit markets remained a picture of tranquility, or almost. Uh, so the big question here is, is that truly a reflection of not a lot of risk and steady as she goes, or is this something else and perhaps the calm before a storm? And here to help us understand that is Mike Buchanan. He's Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Western Asset Management Co., an independent affiliate of Leg Mason, which oversees $433 billion. Uh, and he is based in Pasadena, California, where he comes to us from. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. What's your take here? Because we have seen a bit of spread widening, particularly in high-yield credit, uh, and yields are rising. You are seeing some high-yield bonds deals getting pulled are we is this sort of the precipice before a bigger weakness hi lisa and and thanks for having me on um yeah i I think our view uh is that no it's not the precipice before some more meaningful fall in fact you know as we were watching all this volatility unfold in the equity markets uh one we maintain that it didn't seem like this was a fundamental pullback we couldn't find any real evidence that you know, fundamentals were the catalyst for what was happening. It appeared to be technical. I think when we got uh, more clarity on on, uh, the short ball funds and how they were playing out uh, in the market, it became a little more clear what was driving that volatility. And we came in uh, yesterday morning really hoping to put some money to work at uh, meaningfully cheaper levels. And as you pointed out in your introduction, didn't quite see that, but we have seen some some weakening in price. And I think that's just creating a better opportunity in, in a lot of these spread markets. So what are you buying right now? Well, we're adding to high yield, and you know, high yield still at uh, you know 360 basis points over. If you look at just the generic index, that's that's almost 40 basis points wider uh, than where we were toward the end of January. And you know, as you pointed out, with with overall uh, rates moving higher, you know, that gets you to north of six percent. And you know, as much as we wanted it to go a little cheaper to add, we still think that's. A, a very good opportunity. We look at the fundamental backdrop and see um, very supportive credit fundamentals. Uh, fourth quarter earnings are coming in uh, very strong. Uh, so just a lot of uh, a, a lot of fundamental support for adding to that position. Um, also, uh, emerging markets. We think the real uh, meaningful opportunity in spread markets right now is in local currency uh, emerging markets. And again, didn't really see. You know, a, a meaningful sell-off, but um, saw a little bit of uh, a backup, and uh, I think that just made it more attractive. Mike, if yields increase, if interest rates increase, won't that put even greater pressure on companies that have to go to the high-yield bond market in order to finance their businesses? Yeah, I think at the margin, that's that's accurate. Um, you know, you do have a lot of below investment grade companies that have accessed the floating rate market. And now that uh, short-term rates, uh, LIBOR is essentially above all those LIBOR floors, 
every pickup in LIBOR translates into uh, you know higher interest costs for these companies. So you do have to have a, a view on ultimately where you think rates are going. Our view right now is that um, you know if you look at what's priced into the market, you know three hikes this year, two hikes next year, that pretty much gets you to the the, the Fed's target, their their terminal rate. Um, so we we look at where rates are currently and. We think based on, on, on growth, based on inflation, uh, there's not a significant risk of meaningfully higher uh, rates. Mike, I want to talk about liquidity because you said that you were hoping, you came in yesterday morning hoping to uh, buy some discounted bonds. Uh, there weren't that many opportunities because people weren't necessarily selling them at such big discounts. And I'm wondering, you know, how concerned are you that you really cannot move very big blocks of bonds. And I know liquidity worries were all in uh, vogue a couple of years ago, then people stopped caring. But I'm starting to hear about it again around the margins. What's your take on this? Well, I do think you have to be very sensitive to um, you know, liquidity in the market. And it's just a byproduct of, of one, the growth in the corporate credit market, uh, combined with the amount of risk capital that dealers have to commit to their their inventory, and that was typically you know the first layer of of liquidity, um, and and just that dynamic alone tells you there's less liquidity in this market, and we operate with that assumption when we're pricing out a bond, we want to make sure that that we put a little more of a liquidity premium than we did you know let's say five or or, or ten years ago. Um, that being said, uh, w- what we found yesterday, and you know you only know this when you're kind of out in the market and you're, you're testing levels, is that um, the bids were actually very deep in the, the, the credit markets and the AEM markets. Um, it, you know, it seemed like a lot of people had the same view or, 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 or were trying to do the same thing that we were, which was put money to work at uh, more attractive levels. So I do think if, if, if we had wanted to sell that um, the bids were there, albeit at maybe at lower prices, and we would have been able to move substantial size. But to me, it seemed like more uh, more uh, investment professionals were lining up on the bid side, wanting to be buyers at lower levels as opposed to wanting to sell it at higher levels. Where's the biggest opportunity left in credit? I mean, specific sectors or even companies? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's still a few within developed market credit. We do like the high yield space, and I know that may be a little bit of a contrarian view, but our um, assessment really is that ultimately fundamentals drive valuations, and fundamentals we see improving. We see uh, leverage metrics going uh, lower. We see uh, we see cash flow generation improving. We think tax reform is going to be you know, a little bit of an added tailwind. And like I said earlier, at 360 basis points over treasuries, I think um, that's 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 a reasonable. I mean, not not a table pounder, but a reasonable relative value anomaly. Um, I do think in it, within high yield, uh, you know, you can focus on some of the strong double Bs that have a, uh, a a reasonable chance to move to investment grade. I think you know names like Freeport, McMoran, uh, Williams. You know those are names that um, we think can definitely get to IG, and if they do, you've got probably another thirty to forty basis points of spread tightening there. Just want to give you about twenty seconds. You talked about emerging markets. What about Argentina, the Republic of Argentina? We like Argentina. We think that um, you know the, the you just you're starting with such a high nominal rate, almost fifteen percent. 
on, on their local currency 10-year, um, that even when you factor in the, the, the inflation, and by the way, we think the inflation is trending lower there, um, you look at the real yield, and that looks very compelling when you compare it to the real yields that you're getting in most developed markets. Thanks very much for being with us. Mike Buchanan is Deputy Chief Investment Officer for Western Asset Management. They are an independent affiliate of Leg Mason, helping to manage more than $430 billion, joining us from Pasadena, California. Tesla, a company to surely draw some passionate responses, whether people are for it or against it. Here to talk about what to expect for the earnings, which we should get after the bell today, is Alan Baum, auto analyst and principal at Baum and Associates. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, How much are we really going to learn about the burning question? And no, it is not the space rocket that was launched yesterday. It is, can Tesla actually produce the cars they have promised? Yeah, I mean, the answer is they can. The obvious question is when. Uh, and so, uh, the, you know, the, the idea of uh, are they going to hit their goals at the end of this quarter and at the end of the next quarter, uh, each of those have been put off uh, several times. And obviously, that's the burning question, as you as you mentioned, uh, for the, the earnings uh, call this afternoon, uh, because this is obviously a future stock. Uh, you know, it's based on where this company is going. Um, And so uh, that's the issue. All right. If that's the issue, is it likely that they're going to announce any management changes at Tesla? Because there has been a rotating senior executive panel when it comes to actually producing this Model 3. Yeah, there, there have been a lot of changes. And actually, I'm more interested, and this probably wouldn't get much coverage uh, in, the, in the call today, uh, on the operational side. Uh, you know, if, uh, some quarters or even a year or two ago, uh, Tesla brought in some manufacturing experts uh, that got them uh, some progress, obviously. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that, that they need to do. Um, I've always said that Tesla understood, unlike a lot of its startup EV competitors, uh, that it was an auto company. Um, And it has, uh, over a long period of time, brought in key technical professionals. Uh, There's obviously been a fair amount of churn there. um, And uh, what they're trying to do is obviously very difficult. So they need that kind of help. And uh, those kind of questions uh, need to be answered. All right, Alan, I don't understand how anyone tries to actually value these shares. I should just point out that the broad S&P 500 index is up less than 2%. Tesla shares up about 10.5% just so far this year following a 45% gain last year. How are you evaluating this company? Well, clearly you can't do it on the fundamentals. No. Uh, I mean, th- th- this is a momentum stock. This is an emotional stock. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and say, uh, well, based on the, the uh, expectation of, of sales, production, profits, uh, we're going to see this. Um, the market is determining this stock, and obviously that's a ridiculous and true statement. Um, but the, the point being is, how uh, can they move forward as obviously they continue to miss uh, the targets? Now, the flip side of that is 
the Model 3 is different. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, the Bolt is out there. The Leaf has been redone, and we're going to have a second version of it later this year. And I would argue that just doesn't matter because the Model 3, the Model S, the Model X, they are viewed in a different spectrum than those vehicles. Now, what does matter, perhaps, is as Audi, as Porsche, as BMW, uh, as uh, as Daimler start to put out models. Uh, and yes, those are luxury brands, and Tesla is trying to move uh, down market, if you will, but it's still viewed in that luxury milieu. And so the, that has the potential to be a problem. I just don't see the bolt or the leaf uh, as, as a competitor. Really, why not? Because it's because of the way the the product is viewed. What Tesla has done is not only did they, they create an electric car, obviously, and and but they created a, a good car uh, from a from a. Uh, non-environmental uh, 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 perspective. It was, is fun to drive, the S and the X. The three, it's obviously going to be different, uh, but it is still viewed within that, that genre of being, okay, this is something special. And uh, of course, you know, if you can't make the car or if the quality is awful, uh, then you're going to lose some of that specialness, if you will. Uh, but I, I just see it as still being uh, has the opportunity uh, to be viewed in that positive light. Thank you very much, Alan Baum, auto analyst and a principal at Baum and Associates, giving us a preview of Tesla. The shares of Tronk, they are higher right now by more than 26% after agreeing to sell the Los Angeles Times for $500 million. This begins a new chapter in the newspaper's 136-year-old history. Here to tell us about this and other media events is Porter Bibb, managing partner, MediaTek Capital Partners, and he can be followed on Twitter at Porter3. All right, Porter, what do you make of this sale to uh, a local investor and um, the future of the uh, San Diego Union Tribune and the LA Times. Well, the, the LA Times and, and perhaps the, the San Diego Tribune were both going to implode over the dysfunctional trunk management. And so this is a lifesaver for the papers and for the community. Uh, and having a local owner is a huge benefit. The The real issue, though, is the, the price. Uh, half, a, half a billion dollars uh, is twice what Jeff Bezos paid for the Washington Post. This is cash. Twenty it, 500 million in cash right. and 90 million in pension yeah. liabilities. Yeah. But he, he he's a, uh, the, the buyer is a shareholder, major shareholder in Trunk. So uh, he had to have some insight into what he was doing um, I, I think if he if he is smart and he lets the editorial and, and management staff of the two papers uh, do their thing uh, there's a great opportunity because clearly the LA Times is one of the, the three great newspapers along with the Washington Post and the New York Times that will survive in the United States and globally. 
I think there's a big question, and we've actually seen the Washington Post and New York Times gain traction with getting subscribers to actually pay. Uh, And digital subscribers. That's what I'm saying. Digital subscribers. I should have said the digital part. Uh, But, but, you know, they actually pay for the content. And the LA Times uh, needs to provide. Yeah. They're they're offering uh, $1.99 for six months subscription online. That's not $1.99, not $199, but $1.99. But with respect to subscription, we also got results out from Disney last night, and I thought yes. that it was interesting what they're doing with ESPN, uh, looking to create some kind of uh, special service that you can right. pay for uh, 99 almost $5 a month for what is this, and does that make ESPN more valuable, or is this just more noise? Well, ESPN, like everything else on cable uh, and, and uh, traditional television distribution um, the, the the legendary media that we used to know um, ha- has been losing customers and when they lose customers or viewers in this case they lose advertising revenue so they Disney is adopting uh, over the top uh, a two revenue stream they want uh, subscription money and they want advertising and they will do that because an awful lot of people subscribe to cable right now for two reasons HBO and ESPN and all the live sports that ESPN can provide on cable and if if you can save 80 90 100 plus dollars uh, on your cable subscription and spend only 5 or 10 or 15 for HBO and for uh, ESPN you're way ahead of the game and that they're targeting the millennials who are already over the top and not they're not cord cutters, they're cord nevers, and that's the future. Tell me about the future of Viacom. They're going to be releasing their results tomorrow before the market opens. Uh, tell me about the challenges that Viacom faces and the, uh, I guess it's a, maybe they could even make it into a movie, Viacom and CBS <laughs> and right. uh, the Redstone family. That, that That's something Viacom could do because Par- Paramount could use some some new talent in their, their film side. Uh, I think we're, we're not in an apocalypse, but we're in a sea change uh, transition period. 2018 is going to go down as, as the end of legacy media and the real beginning of digital media. And Viacom has to combine with CBS, not for any other reason than that's what Sherry Redstone really wants to do. She's put her foot down. Uh, Les Moonves is the, is the uh, stumbling block because he wants unfettered, absolute control of the combined companies or he won't play. He did try to buy CBS three years ago and he couldn't persuade the, the Redstones to sell it to him. So uh, he may or may not be part of the picture going forward. But what is, is the next shoot a drop is Verizon steps in and buys the combined Viacom and CBS. And Sherry knows that if CBS, which is Verizon's real target, um, doesn't, if CBS gets bought uh, by Verizon, she'll never get rid of Viacom and it'll just die. I want to I want to pick up on something that you said. Digital media they need to transform to that. What is that, and what is the uh, sort of premier model of who's doing it right? Well, Disney has a, a good start, but uh, you have to give Netflix as the pioneer. They they have done it better than anybody. They've got uh, 90 million subscribers in the United States right now. They've kept the the the, the price low. If you remember. 
three or four years ago, Netflix tried to increase the the monthly subscription, and the bottom fell out of their subscriber base. So, uh, keeping the price low, uh, that's that's half the secret. The other secret is having terrific content and lots of it, and refreshing the content. That's why Netflix is spending eight billion dollars creating new content this year. 21st Century Fox is going to report their results after the market closes today. What are your thoughts about uh, the Murdoch empire? Well, uh, Rupert uh, has one last dream, and that's to be the largest shareholder in Disney, which he will be. Um, he and his family and his and his family trust uh, win the Disney-Fox deal. Uh, $52 billion deal. That's right. And and what he will be left with is what he what he knows and loves, which is news and sports. And uh, by the way, he's still trying to get control of, of Sky in the UK. And the government, the, the parliamentary uh, regulators, have said there's no way, Jose. They want Disney to buy those assets and to own all of Sky, which Disney wants to do as well. Bob Iger mentioned that in his earnings call yesterday. So just a real quick, what's the M&A deal that hasn't happened yet that we're going to be talking about uh, later this year? The real issue is uh, what happens to the cable companies because they're going to lose the cable business over the next five years. The, the flip side of that whole story, though, is that they are the largest internet service providers and they will get more and more entrenched in providing a faster, better, and unfortunately, more expensive access to the internet. So in other words, Verizon and others, although Verizon already has that. Comcast, but... Charter, Spectrum. The, uh, look, look what Altice has come up with. This is the future of the cable industry. They have eliminated the, the cable box. They've got um, voice controlled, they've eliminated the remote control so that you can just say channel five verbally, the way yeah. you would to Alexa or Google Assistant, and that changes the channel on your TV. That's the future of, of the cable industry, but it's really all targeted at internet and over the top. Porter Bibb, thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Porter Bibb, managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners in New York, joining us here in our 1130 studios. The shares of Wind Resorts are higher by nearly 10%. The uh, former chief executive of the company, Stephen Wynn, he owns a little bit more than 11.5%. Uh, former wife Elaine Wynn owning about 9.25%. What's next for the company that has his name on the door? Here to tell us more, Brian Egger, our senior gaming and lodging analyst for a Bloomberg intelligence. Brian, thanks very much for being uh, with us and coming in. So, uh, all right, give us the details about Wynn Resorts when you've got someone whose name is literally on, on the, the door, door yes. uh, and owns almost 12% of the company, and he's no longer going to be running it. What happens right. next? So the successor CEO, a guy named Matt Maddox, had previously been president. He was chief financial officer before that. Uh, fairly well-known and well-respected by the street. Clearly not known for uh, the developing of all the um, uh, of all the famous casinos for which Wynn is known, going back to the days of the Gold Nugget and Mirage. Nevertheless, I think uh, there was some expectation that we'd see a succession here, given the allegations that came out 
uh, on February 26th and the subsequent scrutiny by both the board of directors of Win itself and several gaming regulators. So not entirely unexpected. Not unexpected, but a lot of people were talking about the cult of personality yes. uh, amid a lot of the allegations. And, you know, he had that. So, you know, will there be something lost without that? I think you could argue there is a win premium associated with the valuation and with the stock having retreated from the low 200s before this scandal broke to more recently mid-160s today up back to the 170s. Um, much of that has been taken into account of the way we do the math. If you lob one multiple point off of the valuation of the EBITDA cash flow in either Vegas or Macau, it reduces the value of WIM by anywhere from 3% to 5%. Much of that has happened. The reason the stock is up today is with the resolution of succession. Uh, it does allay some concerns that regulators might have had about suitability of Mr. Lin himself and perhaps reduces the risk associated with them pursuing their mid-2019 mid <laughs> opening of a casino uh, in Boston Harbor, which is a really important project for the company. Brian, uh, why didn't the board suspend Steve Wynn prior to this uh this announcement, I mean, you know, when the investigation was going on. So basically the day this news broke and was uh, originally discussed in the media, Wynn Resort set up a special committee of outside directors to investigate the allegations parallel to the investigations being done by gaming regulators in Massachusetts as well as Nevada. Uh, and this is really the outcome of, of that that process of reviewing the allegations and coming to the yeah, conclusion. Yeah, but if it wasn't made, if it had not right. been made public and splashed across all of the media, do you think yes. they would really have been investigating? I mean, it was a seven and a half million dollar payment, right? One can argue, and we have looked at this in our own written research, that the board itself, from a governance perspective, has to be held to a greater degree of accountability. We've looked at things like age, tenure, gender of the board itself. Uh, so no doubt the board itself will be subject to ongoing scrutiny. I admit uh, Steve Wynn's resignation itself does not completely address what the board should or should not have been doing. Well, but on that point, is there some kind of legal liability that's hanging over the company as a whole since some of these allegations were known inside the company? Right. I think what needs to be determined is wh what allegations were known and at what time they were known. And I don't have the answer to that. What I will tell you is that what regulators were concerned about, and very much the board, I think, has been responsive to the risk of regulatory license uh, being removed, is uh, the suitability of Mr. Wynn, in particular, not only the allegations themselves, but whether or not, with respect to the legal settlement that he had made with at least one individual, whether or not that legal settlement was suitably disclosed. So the Massachusetts Gaming Commission is going to continue to look at this. I think they're actually having a meeting today. And in the process of doing this, they still have to um, address these issues. My assumption is that Wynn's departure goes a long way towards addressing some of those concerns, but ultimately the Gaming Commission itself still has to determine whether or not it's comfortable with suitability. We think the likelihood is, is they will proceed and the project will proceed. But I think the everyone involved in that application process is still going to be held accountable for what they did or did not disclose. Any idea of what the role of his uh, ex-wife, uh, Elaine Wynn, will play? At the time of his departure, uh, Steve Wynn himself had voting control over the shares, the 9% of shares in Wynn Resorts owned by Elaine Wynn. Steve Wynn, as you pointed out, still owns 12% of it. Some of the details surrounding his departure and the relationship with the company still have to be worked out. But what we do know is 
He is gone, and Matt Maddox, former president, takes over as CEO both of the Las Vegas operation and the Macau operation, where there had, where there had also been concerns about the renewal of a gaming license there, uh, which expires in 2022. Is there some kind of way to handicap the monetary value of any potential investigation, including the one that regulators are meeting about today? I don't think that's something that's readily quantifiable. What we have endeavored to quantify is both the value of the win premium multiple assigned to both the Las Vegas and Macau operations, and also the value of the Massachusetts property, which we estimate probably was probably about 10% of the enterprise value of this company. Uh, And certainly, again, if you ask me why is the stock up today, for example, I would say that's probably because the risk of a forfeiture of that license is greatly mitigated, if not completely eliminated, by when stepping down. Brian Egger, thank you so much for being here uh, with us to sort of break down and understand the story uh, from a bigger picture uh, point of view. Brian Egger, senior gaming and lodging analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.